Go ahead and take a seat. Hey, if we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Brian Haas. I'm a pastor here and super excited for what we're going to be diving into this month. The entire month of February, we're in a brand new series called The Other Side. So here's to kind of get us all thinking in the same way on what this series is all about and hopefully how this begins to give you something to wrestle with, work towards, and obviously allow Jesus to change our lives. Even just think through this morning with me. All the decisions that led to an action for you to get you to this spot here today. And then even after this, in the next 45 to 75 minutes when I'm done preaching, some of you got super nervous. It's like, is he serious? When we're done here, you're going to have other decisions that are going to lead to other actions. And each and every one of those decisions that leads to an action we could view as a domino in our lives and even that impact other people's lives as well. And here's what I want us to wrestle with, is those actions that we live out. We have an idea of, if I do this, then that might happen, right? Basic cause and effect. Our actions matter, but there are times where our actions lead to something beyond anything we could ever imagine. You see, from our side, it might not seem like a very big deal. But then on the other side, with the person that we're interacting with, the the relationship that's involved with some of our actions, it can mean the world. So what we might think is a no big deal domino, in reality, pushes many, many more over and impacts people around us. You might have experienced something like this where maybe you get a text message from a friend or a family member, a spouse on a specific day, and you read that text and it might say something pretty insignificant, right? It's still heartfelt, but in the grand scheme of things, it was not a major text. It was one or two sentences that maybe said something like, hey, I was thinking about you today. I love you. I'm proud of you. You're doing a good job. Maybe you got a text like that at some point from somebody. But what you were dealing with that day, that two-sentence text meant the world. You might have circled back with that friend or that family member, that coworker, and says, you have no idea what that meant to me. And they're on the other side saying, whoa, calm down. Like, wasn't supposed to change your life. It's just supposed to say, like, good job, keep it up. But from your perspective on your side, no, you don't understand. You don't know how much that meant. You don't know what that did for me. I needed it right then in that moment, and it made all the difference in the world. What seems like an insignificant act, a domino, just one of the many, you have no idea what could be on the other side of your actions. Specifically this month, we're going to be talking about one specific type of actions. Let's read this, and then I'll help you understand how that's going to apply to us. What we're going to see, we're going to look at two parts. This sets up a parable. We'll talk about the parable in a second, but here's the context. Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus, so not the best motives in the entire world, stood up to test Jesus, asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Verse 26, Jesus replied, well, asked him a question. What does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, I want you to read this with me. It's pretty familiar. If not, we're going to make it familiar for you. Read verse 27 with me. The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your, and all your, and all your, keep going, and love your as 
self. That's right. We are called to do that, to love the Lord, our God, my God, your God, with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, with all our mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus answered him, you're right, he told him. Do this and you will live. Verse 29, the man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, well, who exactly is my neighbor? I don't want to be too intentional with too many dominoes on accident. (laughs) I don't want to accidentally love too many people. He wants to know where that line is at. I want to make sure that I'm only loving my neighbor, so I need to know exactly who is my neighbor. And here's what I want us to focus on is the specific act of our compassion. As we're going to see, that's what That's how we apply that. We love the Lord our God and we love our neighbor as ourselves. We do that last part through compassion, which means all these actions that we place in our lives, all these dominoes that we place in our life, we have opportunities to live out compassion. And I'm telling you, you have no idea what could be on the other side of your compassion. No idea what God could do with your, what you might say is a relatively insignificant act of compassion what that could do, the dominoes that could fall in somebody else's life because we lived that out. Loving your neighbor as yourself to live a life of compassion. Let's pray. We'll see how that applies. Jesus, thank you so much for what we can learn from you, but I pray it doesn't just end with learning, that it moves to just living. So Jesus, speak to us. We're listening. We're looking for you. Show us how to live this out in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So Jesus is going to answer this man's question. That last part, the context, ended with this man asking, so exactly who's my neighbor? I need a line. I want to live right up to it. I don't want to do too much. I don't want to do too much loving and giving compassion around the people around me. So tell me exactly who and how much I need to do in order to be in your good graces, is what he's saying. So Jesus comes back and answers him with a story. We use the phrase, a parable, pretty familiar parable, maybe one of the most famous of Jesus's parables. We know it as the parable of the Good Samaritan. Here's the story, and then we're going to pull a bunch of stuff out of it. Jesus replied to this man with the story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant or a Levite walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Verse 33, then a despised Samaritan, that's key. I won't give you the whole background, but if you don't know the context of Jews and Samaritans, they did not like each other at all. So you had two Jews that passed by this Jewish man. We know that. So here is this Samaritan, which the Jews despise the Samaritans and the Samaritans despise the Jews. So there's racial conflict there and tension. Then a despised Samaritan came along. And when he saw the man, he felt, here's the word we're talking about all month. Say it with me. He felt compassion for him. Verse 34, going over to him. The Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. And if the bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. So that's the story. Now Jesus is gonna have a conversation with this man that this whole thing started with. He says, so which of these three? You had the priest, 
the Levite, and a despised Samaritan. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits, Jesus asked. The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. By the way, I think it's great that he couldn't even call him the Samaritan. Don't make me say his name, Jesus. (laughs) The one, that guy that showed him mercy. And Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. So we're going to try to figure out how to do just that, how to go and do the same with all the actions in our lives. How can we find opportunities to live out a life of compassion, to love our neighbor as ourselves? Now, when I read through that story, that parable, again, it's a fictional story Jesus uses to get a point across. When I read through that story, I have a little anxiety because of something that I feel like is missing in that story. I feel like Jesus left a part out of that story. If you know anything about good stories or good movies, good novels and good books, there are five parts to make a story a good story. And this story has all of those except one. We have the characters, we have the setting, we have plot, we have conflict and tension. The one part of this story that is absolutely missing is complete resolution. There's not a really good ending to this story. Like imagine watching the Good Samaritan story play out in a movie and there's this tension, this man gets beaten up and then all these three people walk by but only one stops and then he takes them to the end and then, well, what happens next? (laughs) Like we don't know. It ends abruptly right there and we don't know what happens next. My mind starts going, oh Jesus, like how does this end? Does the man that got hurt, did he actually get better? Was Was it worth it? Or did this man, this Samaritan, do all this work for nothing and he died at the end three days later? Like, do we know what happened? Do they ever meet? Does the Samaritan ever meet the man? Because this guy, we understand, seems to be unconscious this whole time. Do they ever meet? Is there ever like a thank you given? Did the Samaritan actually go back and pay or does the innkeeper get gypped and everything falls apart? Like there's so much about this story that we don't know. There's not a good ending to it. It bothers me. But I think Jesus does that. I would assume Jesus does that very intentionally because we love to know how things end. We have a need, if you haven't picked up on that, we have a need for things to resolve and to resolve well and for everything to be buttoned up at the end. Jesus abruptly ends this story because the the result is not the point of the story. The point of the story is what happens in every single moment. So when we're looking for opportunities to live a life of compassion, we should not be thinking of the end result. Well, is it worth it? Will this be reciprocated? Will this work out in the end? Will it make a difference? Like we want to go there. I will do my action. I will do a compassionate act only if I know what's on the other side. Only if I see where this is gonna lead. And then we begin to evaluate, is it worth it or not? The parable of the Good Samaritan, we have no idea What is on the other side of that Samaritan's compassion? Jesus' point, look for those moments of compassion in every moment of your everyday life because you have no idea what could be on the other side of your compassion. So let's dig into compassion a little bit more. Here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna make sure we understand what compassion is and is not, and then we're gonna figure out how we can actually live a life of compassion, and we're gonna make it super, super helpful, super practical, where you're gonna actually have some homework this week. So here we go. The first part we have to understand about compassion is compassion moves us to stop. 
We see that in the first part of this story. We see that there is a priest that sees the man. What does he do? Does he stop? Yes or no? No, no. He then passes by on the other side. We see another man, a religious man, a Levite, a temple assistant. He also sees the same man, sees the same problem. Does he stop? Yes or no? No. And then he passes by on the other side. Then we have the Samaritan who feels compassion and actually stops. Walking along the side of the road and sees somebody, but then actually stops. Compassion isn't just something we feel. It forces us, it compels us, it moves us to stop. See, all three, the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan, they all saw this man that needed help. They were all aware of him. I would make an assumption here that they all three felt something. We're, physically, we're specifically only told that the Samaritan felt compassion, but you would have to be unbelievably heartless to walk by somebody left half dead and say, Bummer for you. Sorry about your luck. You deserved it. Like you'd have to be really heartless. So I'm going to make an assumption here. Maybe I'm wrong that the priest and the Levite were not completely heartless. I'm going to assume they saw him and they probably said, oh, that's too bad. I wish I could do something, but I can't. I think they did feel something, but it never moved them to actually stop. Compassion should move us to stop. Make no mistake. Compassion is an interruption. Anytime you get presented with an opportunity to act in compassion, it every single time will feel like an interruption. Compassion is never convenient. Oh, this is great. This works out perfect with my schedule. I would love to stop what I'm doing and help you. (laughs) Never happens. If it does, I would wonder if it's truly compassion or not. (laughs) Compassion, moments for that are interruptions. They are not convenient because it requires us to stop, put everything for us on hold so that we can love our neighbor as ourself. In the 1970s, there was a study done, a research study done at Princeton, specifically with Princeton's theological seminary students. If you ever want a good study, throw some seminary students in a room and see what happens. That's basically what they did. They took these Princeton theological seminary students, put them all in a classroom and gave them a task. They said, today, you are going to have to write a sermon, and by the end of the day, you will have to deliver, present that sermon to a group of your supervisors at a studio across campus. Now, for a seminary student, that's, that's pretty typical. They, you write a lot of messages, and you present them to a lot of different people, but this one was a bigger deal because of the time frame. It was going to happen that same day. So the class instructor said, here's what you will be talking on. He gave every student in the class, everybody, every seminary student, the exact same assignment. Everybody was going to be giving a sermon on the parable of the Good Samaritan. So they let them work in the classroom, work on this sermon, and then they split them into several different groups. To one group, as they finished up, they looked at the group and said, you guys need to hurry up and finish because your supervisors are waiting for you. You are already late and you still have to make it all the way across campus. So leave now. They're already waiting on you, but you need to hurry to get there. Another group, they got together as they were finishing up their sermons. They told the, the other group, hey, you should be finishing up. If not, go ahead and wrap up. I want you to start heading over to the studio. It's all the way across campus. You have plenty of time, so don't rush it because they're not quite ready for you yet, but it's good if you go ahead and head over there. But just expect by the time you get there, you're probably gonna have to wait on them because they're not quite ready for you yet. Do you understand the difference of those two situations? 
One was a very hurried situation. The other one was a low hurry situation. Of the first group that was told to hurry up and go, your supervisors are waiting on you. They had to go across campus. And you know what they ran into across campus? There was another researcher that had placed himself along the way from point A to point B, but he was in disguise. He was dressed up as a victim, as somebody that was hurting, definitely looked helpless, was coughing, was hunched over, and made sure that he was in the line that these students were going to walk from point A to point B to go and deliver a sermon on the Good Samaritan. Of the first group, you see where this is going, of the first group, the high hurry situation group, as they were rushing to give their sermon on compassion, 10% of the students stopped to ask if this man was okay. Just 10%. The other group, where they were told to go ahead and, and go, but you're not in any hurry, 63% stopped. 63% stopped. Same message, same seminary class, same man in need, same path from point A to point B. One group, only 10% stopped, and the other, 63% compassion moved them to stop. See, the opposite of compassion would be indifference. I don't care about you. I don't care what happens. Honestly, I don't think for most of us, indifference is the problem, is the greatest enemy. I think the greatest enemy of compassion is hurriedness. Because what happens when we hurry? We miss people. The faster we move, the quicker we move past people. That was the issue between these two groups of seminary students. One was in a hurry, <laughs> One was not. I have a confession to make on the subject of hurrying. Many of you know, if not, I've got three kids. And earlier on, I, I can't get away with this anymore because my kids have gotten a whole lot smarter. <laughs> but what I was able to do when they were younger is able to speed some things up. So we have a bedtime routine. Most parents have some version of a bedtime routine and it takes forever. I mean, it feels like it's dinner and then let's start the bedtime routine just so we get this thing done in less than three hours. Because it's like, you gotta go and brush your teeth. Then make sure you go to the bathroom. And then everybody's thirsty, so we're gonna go and get you water, which means we have to go to the bathroom again. I mean, it's just like this constant, there's always something. So part of our bedtime routine is all of that, but it also includes prayers and Bible story and we'll let them pick out another book and we'll read to them. So it turns out to be this all night thing. So when they were a lot younger, I'd be like, man, this is taking way too long. I, we want to just hang out. We want to do what we want to do, get the kids in bed so we can go watch our shows and do our things and clean up their messes. So I found myself, when I'd let them pick a book, they would always pick the longest books. The longest. I was like, don't you want to read like Pete the Cat? No, Dr. Seuss. And I'm like, oh my goodness. I hate reading to my kids. That sounds terrible to say that out loud. I really do love that, but it takes so long. So we'd get like green eggs and ham. And when they were younger, I could do this. I could say, I do not like green eggs and ham. Same I am, do not like green eggs and ham. I do like green eggs and ham. I do, I do. Thank you, Sam I am. I could pull that off when they were younger. I could just blow by it. Now that they're older, they've gotten smarter, and I'd go through the Sam I am and be like, whoa, 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 dad. How did he go from not liking it to liking it? I was like, I don't know. There's like a fox in a box and a train. Like, don't worry about that part. <laughs> but then later on, I was like, no, no, no. You skipped a spot, dad. Did I really? My bad. Read it. And then I tried to skip a few more, and then Connor caught on, my oldest. Dad, you're skipping pages. I'm like, because this takes so long. I used to get away with it. I can't get away with it anymore. But what's the reason for that? I wanted to do what I wanted to do. All right? That's, that's honestly the heart of hurriedness, is my schedule, 
my wants, where I need to go is more important than anything or anyone else. So I'm gonna rush to take care of all of my stuff and I'm gonna skip over everybody else. That's a little bit of an exaggeration, but not by much. When we're in a hurry, we skip and miss people and we blow by opportunities to live out compassion. Philippians speaks a little bit to this as well. Philippians chapter two, great passage. If you wanna study something this week, study Philippians chapter two. Here's just two verses. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Maybe we can even say their needs over yours, their schedules over yours. I'll stop too convicting. Verse four, don't look only for your own interest, but take an interest in others too. Take an interest in others too. You know what you cannot do if you wanna take an interest in somebody else? Keep going. It's impossible. Like if you wanna take an interest in somebody, you cannot keep walking. You have to stop because compassion moves us to stop. We can't be hurried because we can't physically get to know somebody and talk with somebody, interact with somebody if we continue to rush along. The greatest enemy of compassion is not indifference. It's hurriedness. The other part we see specifically out of here within compassion is compassion is always followed up with action. See it here? It says that the despised Samaritan, he felt compassion for him, but that's not the end of the story. The very next verse, going over to him. So it's compassion. Yes, there's something you feel, but it is followed by action. And in fact, if you take out that action, compassion without action is purely just observation. If you're just seeing something that's wrong, if you're just seeing an opportunity for compassion and you don't lean in, you don't stop, you don't move, you don't do something, doesn't mean you're not feeling compassion, doesn't mean you don't feel bad about something or have pity, but it really is just observation. I'm on a roll with confessions personally. Can I give you a second one? Here's this next one. Don't judge me for these. I'm still a pretty good parent for the most part. Becky makes up for all my mistakes. So I've not seen one of these in a long, long, long time, but some of you are gonna remember these. There's a commercial that used to go on the air all the time, and it was Sarah McLaughlin singing in the background. Yeah, I'm seeing the nods, right? And these puppy dogs with these sad faces just staring up, and their heads are always like this. And, and Sarah McLaughlin starts singing a little bit louder. Will you remember? You know the song? And the eyes, and you see this whole thing, and oh, your heart just breaks. Sarah does such a good job pulling on your heartstrings. For these sad little dogs, I'll be honest, I don't even know what the commercial was for. Was it like adopting a dog or something? It had something to do with sad dogs. That's it, she remembered. Now here's my confession. So I remember that commercial. I remember how it made me feel. I also remember how long it went on. Like I'd feel convicted, like walk out of the room. It's still on. Move on to what I wanna watch. Hurry to selfish. Anyway, we talked about that one already. So I'm watching this commercial and I felt terrible. And that says a lot because I don't even like animals. But I'm watching this commercial, I'm like, oh, I feel bad for them. But you know what I never did? And I would bet, maybe except for you who knew it, I bet none of us ever called that phone number. I never gave them my credit card information. I felt really bad about it. I hurt for those dogs. But I'm also ready to watch my show. So I felt something, but it never moved me to do anything. It was observation. Let's call it what it is. Compassion without action is observation. We see the exact opposite here. 
for the Samaritan. The other two, yes. Because all three, the priests, the Levite, and the Samaritan, they all saw them, saw the man. Two kept going. They observed, oh, I feel really bad for you, but I got to keep going. I'm choosing to keep going. The Samaritan's the only one that saw, was moved to stop, put his schedule on hold, did not hurry to wherever he was going, and was moved to act. His actions, he went over to him. He soothed his wounds with olive oil, wine. He bandaged them. He put him on his own docking. He took care of him. He took him to an inn. He said, hey, if he needs more care, I'll pay you when I get back. Like it goes on and on and on, the above and beyond, because you have no idea what could be on the other side of your compassion. Not just observation, but compassion. In fact, if you study the Gospels and you go through and study Jesus' life, we see the word compassion come up a lot around Jesus. Go figure. And what we see with Jesus is not just the phrase or word talking about compassion. There's another word that you'll almost find everywhere else, right afterwards. It's the word and. So you'll see Jesus had compassion and healed their sick. Jesus felt compassion and fed them. Jesus was overwhelmed with compassion and reached out. Go through it and look. Find all the places where Jesus had compassion. You'll see an action follow, usually with the word and. It doesn't end with just a, oh, that's too bad. Bummer. I feel sorry for you. There's an and. It moves us to action. So what do we do with that? I hope compassion moves us, because that's what the word literally means. If you have been around me long enough, you know what's about to happen. I'm going to share a word with you. It's my favorite word in the entire Bible. It's the word for compassion, because it gives us so much insight into what this word really means. So it moves us to stop. We cannot be hurried by it. It also moves us to action. The original Greek word, if you study compassion, the original word there is splagnitsomai. I love that word, especially Sunday mornings. <laughs> Splag needs some. I say it with me. We have to practice. This is going to become one of your favorite words if you stay with me long enough. Say it with me. Splag needs so my front row. Watch out. Hang on. If you have a sinus infection, it sounds better. You got to get it in the back of your throat one more time. Splag needs so my. No, you have to say it with me. Not not rhetorical. One, two, three. Splag needs so my. Splag needs so my literally means the innermost bowels is what it means. So why would the innermost bowels be used to describe this word compassion? Because it moves us. It's that pit in your stomach. It hurts. You have to do something. Something churns inside of you, and you can't stop thinking about it until you do something. It's not just a feeling. It is movement and actions. That's splatinitsomai. So that is what compassion is. How do we live this out? Let me give you three ideas that we take from the Samaritan. I think this will help us live this out. Here's the first one. Walk a little bit slower. Just walk a little bit slower. We're so quick to rush through things. If we will just slow down just a little bit, I think we'll see more. I think we'll pay attention more. You know what else is easier when you're going slow? Stopping becomes a whole lot easier, doesn't it? So I think slowing down, that doesn't mean that you, you don't, ignore all of your responsibilities. You still have to get your things done. You have your schedules. I get that. But can you just go through it just a little bit slower? See, we live in a culture that, that values high speed and multitasking. And both of those will cause us to miss opportunities to care and love people. 
Walk a little bit slower. That's the first one. Here's the second one. Stop more often. Like physically stop. If compassion is going to move us to stop, we cannot truly love people on the go. We need to stop. Even if it's a small stop and send that text message. Stop and make that phone call. Stop and make eye contact. Stop and write the note. Stop and say what your heart has been needing to say. Stop and say thank you. Stop, say I'm sorry. You have to stop to do all of those. Could you imagine somebody trying to care for you? It's like, okay, I love you. You're doing a great job. See ya. It doesn't work that way. You have to be willing to stop. We read out of Philippians 2 earlier to take an interest in somebody. If you wanna take an interest in somebody, you obviously have to stop. So walk a little bit slower. Stop more often. And here's the third one. I would encourage you to ask this question. Ask yourself, how do I leave people? See, the priest and the Levite, if they were to ask themselves that question, how did they leave this man that had been beaten up? They left him dying in a ditch. They didn't leave him worse, but they did not leave him any better. The Samaritan, if he were to ask himself that question, again, we don't know the end result. We don't know if he actually got better. Again, the end result is not the difference, but how did he leave him? Better than he was. So the reason that question is so important is because if we're not careful, we will hear this, the parable of the Good Samaritan, whether you've heard it before or not, you're listening to an incredible sermon that's inspiring you to have splagnizomai in your life, but you're like, well, I promise, pastor, and I promise you, Lord Jesus, if I ever am in that situation, if I ever see some man lying half dead in a ditch, I promise to do something about it and be a Good Samaritan. Here's the problem. Chances are likely you will not see somebody half dead lying in a ditch. So does that mean compassion doesn't apply to you? No. I mean, by all means, if you see somebody lying in a ditch half dead, please call 911, do something to help. Yes, please, that's obvious. But what about all the other relationships? What about all the other instances? What about all the other conversations? What about all the other environments? What about all those other dominoes we put in our lives? How do I leave people? Let me give you just a few examples to begin to ask yourself that question. Before you walk out of the house, how do you leave your spouse? How do you leave your kids when they go to bed? How do you leave your coworkers on your way out of the office? How do you leave the car next to you on 400? Dinged up, probably. How do you leave the, the checkout lady and guy at the grocery store when you're mad because your groceries aren't being scanned fast enough? How do you leave the waiter or the waitress that's taking your order? Go through all the people that you interact with on a day. How do you leave them? Because this story is bigger than just an extreme situation. It's a good example, but it applies in our everyday context. So there's some application. We're going to go just a little bit further in. All right, so stay with me on this one. If we really want to do those three things, walk a little bit slower, stop more often, and ask ourselves that question, how do we leave people? If we truly want to do that every single day, there's something we need to look at. And if you go through the New Testament, you'll find this again and again and again so much. Let me show you part of it. Here's what I call the one another's. If you were to do a study in the Bible, the New Testament on the one another's, this is not all of them. This is a good chunk of them. Notice the one another's. This is how we love one another, right? Most of the New Testament is helping us live out exactly what this context is. How do I love God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength, with all my mind? And how do I love my neighbor as myself? That's what the New Testament helps us understand and live out and know. 
So for the love your neighbor as yourself, we learn, we learn to do these things. We're at peace with one another. We honor one another. We encourage one another. We be patient. We're supposed to be patient with one another. Submit to one another. We don't grumble against one another. We pray for one another. That's how we live this out. That's great. We'll put it on social if you want to go through these and study these. We're going to take another step in. Let's make it more personal. Go to the next one, Beth. Oh, that's a lot more personal, isn't it? It's not just one another anymore. It's there's somebody that needs that from you. So who do you need to live in harmony with? There should be a name that pops in your mind there. Who do we need to forgive? A name should go in there that's specific to you. Pray for who? Don't grumble against parents. That is your kid's Bible verse for the entire week where they can put your name in that one. See, now it gets really personal. If we really want to love one another and be compassionate, live a life of compassion, we have to start living this out from scripture. Anybody else a little overwhelmed? That's a lot to do, isn't it? Yeah. So here's what I want us to do. We're gonna simplify this just for this week. I'm gonna pick one and I'm gonna give you one thing to do this week. So we're gonna pick the encourage blank. We're gonna pick the encourage one another. And I want you to just solely focus, have a laser focus on that one. If you wanna look for ways to live a life of compassion, and again, you have no idea what that one small act of compassion, that one encouragement, what that could do on the other side in somebody's life. So here's what I want us to do. If we will all commit to this, online, you too. Here's what I want us to do. Once a day, every day, for the next seven days, so for a week, would you commit to complimenting or encouraging one person each day? One person each day. Now to do that, you're gonna find yourself that you're gonna have to walk a little bit slower because you're gonna have to look for, who am I gonna compliment today? Who am I gonna encourage today? You have to walk a little bit slower to look for it. You have to be willing to stop because if you're gonna give an encouragement, if you're gonna give a compliment, guess what you have to do? Stop. Stop and make the phone call, stop and give a text, stop and have a conversation. And then you're gonna ask yourself that question. Hey, did, did what I say leave them better? If you're encouraging them, I hope the answer is yes. <laughs> if it's not, it was probably not the right encouragement. Husbands, take note of that. <laughs> How you encourage your wife, your words matter. So would you be willing to do that with me? If we really wanna live a life of compassion, sometimes we just look for the extreme examples. Oh, and we miss the everyday moments. And I'm telling you, those everyday moments, they can make a difference. So online, give me a thumbs up in the room. Give me some nods. Once a day, for the next seven days, will you slowly look for one person to encourage? Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's somebody you've needed to say something to for a long time. For some of you, you're like, man, I do that already. Awesome. Do it a, more, do it a little bit more. Can you encourage the people that you, you, you normally don't encourage? Go to the strangers that, that again, at the checkout lines at Kroger and Walmart, the waiters, the waitresses, the people you interact with, can you leave them better? We leave people better because that's what Jesus did for us, though. Please don't miss this. This is not a, an entire month I'm trying to be a nicer person. No. I know a lot of nice people that don't know Jesus. This isn't about being nice. This story of the Good Samaritan has nothing to do with being nice. It has everything to do with living out a life that we have been given. First John speaks to that. First John chapter three, verse 16. We know that what we know what real love is, because Jesus gave up his life for us. That is real love. 
because of his real love. Look at this next part. So we ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. Please don't flop those. It is not. We give up our lives for other people so that Jesus might give up his life for us. Please understand the difference there. It is Jesus gave his life for you and Jesus gave his life for me, period. And because of that love and because of that compassion, we are now compelled, we are moved to have the same kind of love and compassion to other people because it's what we've been given. Oh, and we want every person to experience that. And if we can live a life of compassion, then maybe, just maybe, the people we interact with, they get a glimpse of what Jesus has done for me and in our lives. And it points, us, points everybody back to him. So we know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. I almost wanted to stop there, but verse 17 is pretty convicting. It's not gonna be fun to hear or read. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need, but shows no, last time say the word with me, shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? Verse 18, so dear children, let us not merely say we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. That is splagnitzomai, that we are moved to act. Walk a little slower. Stop more often. Leave people around you better. And this week specifically, encourage, compliment one person, at least one person a day for the next seven days because you have no idea what could be on the other side of your compassion. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you so much for the love you have shown us, for the compassion you have given us. You didn't just see our brokenness, you moved into it. You didn't just witness and observe our sin, you took it completely from us. You don't just observe our lives, you stop and move into our very hearts. So Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes to the opportunities to live a life of compassion this week? As we walk a little slower, may you open our eyes to see opportunities to love our neighbor as ourself, to love others the way you have loved us. But may we also recognize that that compassion we give doesn't come from an empty heart, an empty soul, or an empty cup. We must run to you to receive that love and to receive that compassion so that we can give it out. So whatever burdens we may have today, whatever anger we're harboring, whatever bitterness we've held onto, may we run into your arms and deal with that today. Heal our hearts so you can use us to make a difference in people's lives around us. In Jesus' name, amen.